I speak to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I heard a lot about blue laws. These laws first appeared in the Puritan colonies to enforce rest and to encourage worship on the Sabbath. The laws meant that folks could be arrested for working or opening their shops, for drinking alcohol or for traveling on a Sunday. But by the 1970s and 80s when I was growing up, blue laws merely meant that you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. A fact that I remember my parents found anything but restful as they scurried around on a Saturday to ensure they had the vodka for the Bloody Marys for the brunch on Sunday. And in my mind, blue laws were a ridiculous hangover from an earlier puritanical time in our country and evidence that my hometown was hopelessly backwards. I found, however, that those laws were also in place in Virginia where I went to college and here in Indiana when I went to IU for graduate school. And then, oh happy day, I moved to Chicago. And I found that one could waltz into a liquor store on any given Sunday and buy whatever you wanted, or for that matter, any 7-Eleven at 3 a.m. on a Sunday to pick up some beer to keep the party going. Not that I ever had to do that. After living in Chicago for a decade, I'd all but forgotten about blue laws. Then I moved to Connecticut for seminary and on my first Sunday there, a little bewildered to find myself living in a dorm room again at the age of 36, I thought it might be nice to have a glass of wine in the evening. So I went over to stop and shop, grabbed some food, a bottle of wine, and at the register, the cashier rang up my items until she saw the bottle of wine rolling down the conveyor belt. She grabbed it and glared at me as if I were trying to get one over on her, and she said, this ain't no New York. We don't sell alcohol on Sundays. I couldn't believe it. Blue laws in 2006. Puritanical laws ensuring that no one had any fun on a Sunday. No wonder we judge the Pharisees and other religious leaders of Jesus' time as killjoys, imagining that they just want to force people to follow the letter of the law in order to have power over them, for only mean nasties would keep Jesus from healing on the Sabbath. Well, at least that's how I used to feel. But here's the thing. We've got it all wrong. We've got it all wrong. Keeping the Sabbath isn't about doing nothing fun at all on Sunday. The Sabbath was instituted not to punish us, but to free us. It is meant to allow us rest just as God rested after the six days of creation 
And in both the book of Exodus and of Deuteronomy, we receive the Sabbath as a sign of our covenant with God. We are to work six days, but on the seventh day, we're to do no work. And not only us, neither our son or our daughter, our male or female slave, ox or donkey, or any livestock or resident aliens, because we are to remember that we were slaves in the land of Egypt and that the Lord our God brought us out from there. Therefore, the Lord commands you to keep the Sabbath holy. In other words, the Sabbath is not just a day to rest, but a day for justice. A day when even slaves, even the most oppressed people in society, even beasts of burden were free, were able to live not just as means to somebody else's ends, but were reminded of their own inherent worth and dignity. The Sabbath is not about laws to keep us from doing the fun stuff but a way to remind us of our belovedness, a time of justice. And in the Bible, Sabbath is meant to be expanded into a year-long celebration every seventh year when the land is allowed to rest. Then after seven cycles of those seven years, a year of jubilee was to be declared and debts were to be forgiven land given back to its original owners, slaves were to be freed. In other words, Sabbath is not just about lying around on the couch on Sunday watching TV. Rather, Sabbath is radical rest, radical freedom from the constraints that work and society and money have wound around us. As the great Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel reminds us in his book called The Sabbath, he says, strict adherence to the laws regulating Sabbath observance doesn't suffice. The goal is creating the Sabbath as a foretaste of paradise. The Sabbath is a foretaste of paradise. When we understand Sabbath in this deep and rich way that Sabbath is made not to control us but to free us, well then we understand what Jesus is up to today in the gospel. He sees a woman who is not free. She is bent double, able only to look down at the ground, half her height, easy to miss because she's so short, easy to look away from because she's disfigured. We don't know why she's bent over and crippled. She might have terrible, terrible arthritis. Perhaps she has suffered such pains and sorrows in life that she is literally weighed down by grief. Maybe shame has bowed her low. 
But whatever has made her stooped and small, whatever is keeping her from seeing and looking around, Jesus sees her. Jesus sees her, and I mean really sees her. He doesn't see her because she's such a great worker, so valuable to the community because of what she does or makes or produces. Rather, he sees her essential dignity as the beloved of God. And so he pronounces, woman, you are set free. And then he lays hands on her and immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. Now the leader of the synagogue gets cranky with Jesus because he's just done some work on the Sabbath. But let's not scoff at this cranky leader. After all, he is trying to protect the beautiful gift of the Sabbath, the gift of rest, the gift of a day when all we have to do is rest in the presence of God, assured of our own dignity, a day when we remember who we really are and to whom we really belong. That's worth protecting. But what Jesus essentially says here is that he has come not to abolish that law, but to fulfill it. For if the Sabbath is about freedom, if it's about liberation, well then, he must liberate the woman from the bondage she has suffered for these 18 years. The Sabbath is exactly the day on which Jesus ought to free this woman, ought to restore her to community. We, we have certainly lost our sense of Sabbath, haven't we? How many of us catch up on work on Sunday? How many parents are shuttling children to various activities other than church on Sunday morning because that's when the activities happen? How many are spending Sunday evening helping their kids with homework? How many of us are prepping for the week ahead? So many of us are tethered to work and busyness 24-7 through our phones and our iPads and our laptops. We have lost our sense of Sabbath and by God we need it. We don't need it just as a rest from work, but as a way to create a palace, a palace in time, as Heschel also says. We need to know time, not just as something that we waste or are killing or are running out of, but we need to know time as something holy, a foretaste of paradise when we remember our worth before God, a time when we can unfold our crooked 
bodies and our burdened souls that are so weighed down by work and worry and sorrow and shame and that we can stand up before our God, taking, as Isaiah says, delight in our Lord. We don't have to limit Sabbath to Sunday alone, but we must allow some of our time each week to be made holy by putting it aside for God in rest and prayer, in justice and freedom, our own and others. For in that Sabbath time, In that Sabbath time, we are reminded what God truly wants for us, what God has done for us. Not a bunch of rules that keep us from buying a bottle of wine on a Sunday, but the ability to stand up straight, to raise our heads set free, just as the woman healed today was set free by Jesus We are meant to be set free too by him. Not just on the Sabbath, but for all time, free from sin and fear and death. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.